Those who are in love with practice without knowledge are like the sailor who gets into a ship without rudder or compass and who can never be certain where he is going. Practice must always be founded on sound theory, and to this, perspective is the guide and the gateway. And without this, nothing can be done well in the matter of drawing. The painter who draws merely by practice and by eye, without any reason, is like a mirror which copies everything placed in front of it, without being conscious of their existence. Behold here, O reader, a thing concerning which we cannot trust our forefathers, the ancients, who tried to define what the soul and life are, which are beyond proof, whereas those things which can at any time be clearly known and proved by experience remain for many ages unknown or falsely understood. The eye, whose function we so certainly know by experience, has, down to my own time, been defined by an infinite number of authors as one thing, but I find by experience that it is quite another. Here forms, here colors, here the character of every part of the universe are concentrated to a point, and that point is so marvelous a thing. O oh, marvelous! O oh, stupendous necessity! By thy laws thou dost compel every effect to be the direct result of its cause by the shortest path. These are miracles. In so small a space it can be reproduced and rearranged in its whole expanse. Describe in your anatomy what proportion there is between the diameters of all the images in the eye and the distance from them of the crystalline lens. There is a great difference in the length between the joints in men and boys, for in man, from the top of the shoulder to the elbow, and from the elbow to the tip of the thumb, and from one shoulder to the other, is in each instance two heads, while in a boy it is but one, because nature constructs in us the mass which is the home of the intellect before forming that which contains the vital elements. O anatomical painter, beware lest the too strong indication of the bones, sinews, and muscles be the cause of your becoming wooden in your painting by your wish to make your nude figures display all their feeling. Therefore, in endeavoring to remedy this, look in what manner the muscles clothe or cover their bones in old or lean persons. And besides this, observe the rule as to how these same muscles fill up the spaces of the surface that extend between them, which are the muscles which never lose their prominence in any amount of fatness, and which too are the muscles of which the attachments are lost to sight in the very least plumpness. Welcome to Nero's Fiddle, Episode 20, Time to Wake Up. Leonardo da Vinci is often referred to as the quintessential Renaissance man, but he never wrote any great works that we read or refer to, yet he truly did have a first-class mind, and he did leave us a vast notebook, the famous one in which he wrote backwards so it couldn't be easily read. It is more than worth perusing. It's always a pleasure to see the workings of such a first-class man. I couldn't resist a few excerpts from the notebook as our opening this week. We saw that in ancient Greece, when Athenians allowed the dynamic system of democracy to encourage a free flow of thoughts and ideas, there was a flowering of philosophy, theater, and the arts like never had occurred in history. Something similar occurred when the Roman Republic allowed democracy, or at least republicanism, to flourish in their great empire. 
The Greeks were great thinkers, not great administrators, so they left us a legacy of art and philosophy. The Romans were great administrators, not great thinkers, so they showed us how great administration can unify an empire. The European Middle Ages, on the other hand, showed us the opposite. They showed us how the monarchies valued obedience of the populace, not freedom of thought. They also developed an unusual historical dynamic, a religion administered by a central sovereign, the Pope, that ruled the religious life and thought of dozens of kingdoms in medieval Europe. The supreme authority of Pope over European religious thought served to squelch virtually any independent thinking in medieval times. The Dark Ages and medieval period in Europe stretched almost a millennium, from about 500 AD to sometime in the 1400s, depending on how you date it. During this entire period, a French cleric and philosopher named Peter Abelard is the only true original thinker I can come up with. Even so, as a creative thinker who was able to think outside the medieval box, he was heavily criticized and censored. During the early days of the church, the Pope developed virtually unfettered control over the teachings and dogma of the church. This would be strengthened over the centuries under the doctrine that Jesus had told his apostle Peter, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Matthew 16.19 The Vatican expanded this to, I will give you and your successors the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and designated the bishop of Rome, that is the Pope, Peter's successor. To Catholics, this meant that the Pope had the same power to bind or loose as Peter had, as Peter was assumed to be the first Pope, and each Pope that followed him inherited his powers in an unbroken chain of apostolic succession. This meant no one in Christendom could question the authority or dogma of the Pope, who became ever more powerful during the dark medieval centuries. The doctrine that the Pope is Peter's successor and holds the keys to the kingdom of heaven would ultimately lead to the doctrine of papal infallibility, in which the Pope, under certain circumstances, is now incapable of being wrong. The clerical atmosphere in the Middle Ages, then, was one in which dissent from the Roman Catholic Church's established dogma was not tolerated. We've seen already some of the penalties the Church would impose for heresy. Since the Catholic Church was an intensely political organization, High church officials could sometimes find clerics guilty of heresy for what now seem pretty minor differences in dogma. All of this enforced a curtain of repression to settle over medieval thought. The result was almost a thousand years of confirmation bias in which theologians were rewarded for reinforcing the church line and saw exactly what they were expected to see. I say theologians because philosophy just never really got off the ground much in this period. When the Roman Empire was dissolved, the small kingdoms that sprung up to fill the power vacuum were faced with war and raiders. It was a time of fear, plummeting literacy, and strong superstition. This enforced allegiance to the Church's dogma would mean that it would take a millennium to overcome this superstition. It's not that medieval thinkers were dull. There's much medieval writing that represents great feats of intellect. It's just that none of it or very little of it, is interesting. Medieval theologians had a way of interpreting scripture on three different levels. One level was an exposition of what the New Testament verse said on its face. 
Another was to use an Old Testament verse to show how it predicted Christ in a New Testament verse. The third level was to use the whole thing to show how God was using the passage to instruct us on an allegorical level. A medieval scholar might correct me on where I'm wrong to some degree. And though we can respect different medieval writers, some of them were really creative, none of it is very relevant today. As far as I know, this kind of exegesis just died out, and the world moved on as it moved into the Renaissance, Reformation, and ultimately the Enlightenment. Humanity didn't use any of this thought to build a better world, as it did with philosophers like Aristotle. At any rate, history brings unexpected change. I suppose it's one of the constants in history. Medieval thinkers kept trying to analyze societal changes with their old tools of biblical exegesis. But as society changed more and more, it just didn't work. What we know is that the Renaissance began at different times in different places. And as a social movement, it began with small, slow changes that picked up steam and became faster and more significant. So I don't know that it's helpful for us to try and find a starting place for the Renaissance. But let's call it the later half of the 14th century. That'll give us about 50 years of wiggle room. Around 1437, the bubonic plague, or Black Death, began to ravage Europe. The terrible coronavirus that we've all just lived through is nothing compared to the devastation that the Black Death unleashed on Europe. Sadly, it was all relatively easily preventable. People just didn't know what caused the plague. Answer, fleas. So they didn't know to avoid the fleas that spread the contagion. The disease acted quickly. The bacteria headed straight for the lymph nodes. The lymph nodes became completely overwhelmed with the rapidly spreading bacteria, and large buboes, or large black swellings, occurred at these sites in the groin and the armpits. Some of these have been described as as big as an apple. Blood and pus might begin weeping from the buboes. These would be followed by a host of other symptoms, fevers, chills, vomiting, diarrhea, and terrible aches and pains. The vast majority of victims would die within two to seven days after the first signs of the plague. It was estimated that by the time it was over, the Black Death had killed a third of the population of Europe. One might think that the loss of this many merchants, business owners, farmers, and laborers would have had a devastating effect on the European economy. Quite the opposite. As I've said before, there's something that happens after wars, natural disasters, and, evidently, plagues. Those who've lived through difficult times come out the other end, tougher of character than when they went in. This happened following the Black Death. Not only was the chastened populace more serious, almost everyone had lost someone they had loved to the contagion, and most had lost multiple loved ones. So many had died that the remaining peasants had more land and livestock to be productive with. Similarly, merchants and tradesmen had more goods and tools to be productive with. This all led to an increase of wealth. There was as much hard wealth following the plague as before it. As much gold, as many jewels, as many castles, carriages, and land. But fewer rich people to share them, so the rich got richer. On the other side of the economic spectrum, there were fewer laborers. The law of supply and demand worked as well in the Middle Ages as it does now. So despite strong efforts to prevent it, laborers ended up with higher salaries and better living standards following the plague as well. Looking back then, 
We remember Europe after the fall of the Roman Empire as a conglomeration of small, often warring kingdoms without enough money to pay their warriors, so they had to create the feudal system in which nobility were given lands so that they would provide the king with the warriors so he could fight his wars. But over the millennium of the Dark and Middle Ages, these small warring kingdoms grew into large kingdoms, often spanning entire nations such as France and England. Trade expanded to Europe-wide trade networks. Advances in ship construction and shipping meant routes that were previously difficult or inaccessible were now standard trade routes. The shortage of hard currency that was the hallmark of the early Dark Ages had long been remedied, as a strong cash economy meant that there was no longer the need for feudal relationships. These things get stuck in the social consciousness, however, and the relationships continued. By the end of the Middle Ages, advances in farming technology and crop rotation meant that there was sufficient food to feed a larger middle class. And the rise of a cash economy meant the middle class and tradesmen could now be paid with cash for their goods and services. In Italy especially, increased international trade, growing business, and large construction projects led to the need for things like currency exchanges, lenders, and somewhere to invest a social businessman's fortune. In short, the pent-up financial needs led to the rise of the Florentine banking houses, and families, as well as similar institutions in other Italian city-states. Okay, this all sounds like a feudal economy and social system that's ready to transform to a pre-modern system. Yes, in truth, it had been ready for some time. So why hadn't it? That's the interesting part about studying historical systems. The great European kingdoms all had the attractors I just mentioned, pulling it in the direction of modernization. Yet there were strong attractors preventing it. All societies tend to ossify into set norms and beliefs. European medieval society was this on steroids. They had their great chain of being that assigned a place for every member of society, and they believed it. Monarchs were reliant on the existing feudal obligations of the nobility, and they weren't about to allow for changes in the relationships if they could help it. Also, as I've mentioned, the Catholic Church was extremely conservative and firmly controlled the medieval mind and thought. And finally, the people of the medieval period were concrete thinkers. They'd been fed a diet of heaven and hell and good and bad and right and wrong and black and white forever. That's how they saw the world. They just didn't think outside of this box. Probably fewer than 20% of the men were literate and a much lower percentage of women. And so, with all these competing drivers, medieval society had continued plodding along, getting richer and wealthier, but operating under institutions that had served a cash-starved agricultural society of a thousand years earlier, but which no longer fit their needs. Then came the plague. Everyone knew someone who had died, and many saw whole families or even villages decimated or wiped out altogether. In some parts of Europe, 10% of medieval villages were wiped out completely and never returned. Life was filled with wondering who would be taken next. In art, gone were the images of the peaceful and loving Christ, replaced with the scourged and bloody Christ on a cross, or perhaps macabre images of dancing skeletons. In some places, social order broke down as people, unable to process an apparent apocalypse, turned to lawlessness. When it was all over, society was changed. 
The religion that had always been their comfort and protector hadn't been able to save them, leading many Europeans to question their beliefs for the first time. The church, which had been impotent to protect the people, began to suffer from a loss of influence after the plague. Was something not wrong with the church if it could not protect itself from this divine punishment? This psychic shock led people to begin thinking outside the feudal box that they had been confined in for century after century. One of the first to do so was Giovanni Boccaccio. The plague hit Italy somewhere between 1347 and 1348. Boccaccio probably began writing his paradigm-busting book, The Decameron, in 1349 and finished it in 1353. In his book, Boccaccio places seven young women and three young men in a secluded village outside of Florence, sheltering in order to escape the Black Death. The book is a series of a hundred short stories told by the men and women to each other to entertain themselves as they pass the time. The stories are often irreverent, body, witty, and even at times erotic. The book is entirely secular and set Italy on a course toward what we now call Renaissance humanism. It's probably not accurate to call the Decameron the first work of the Renaissance, but it helped to set the movement on its course. Now, after Italy had been rocked to its core, its people were in the mood for something other than the standard allegorical religious fare that they'd been used to for so many centuries. Scholars and artists found a renewed interest in classical sources. Their focus was no longer the place of people within God's order, but what it means to be human. The study of humanity rather than the study of religion became the focus of Renaissance thinkers. And as we've noted, there have been many drivers pushing society in this direction for a long time. When the doors were finally flung open, when Italian scholars, artists, and writers finally realized that it was okay to make humanity the subject of their labors rather than religion, it was kind of like a snowball rolling downhill, accelerating, and continuing to gain momentum. I think when most people think about the Renaissance, the first thing they think about is art. This is for a good reason. Do an online search for medieval art, then do a search for Renaissance art and see the difference. The difference is stunning. The great Renaissance paintings are from masters who deeply studied painting and mastered painting technique. They also studied anatomy and were able to portray the human body in great fidelity. Even a cursory look at the Renaissance masters like Raphael, Botticelli, Donatello, Da Vinci, and Michelangelo shows how they celebrated the human form in their paintings. Medieval paintings were almost inevitably focused on religious themes. The human body didn't play a central role in any of the paintings, nor was it depicted with fidelity. The quality of the painting technique of the medieval painters can't hold a candle to the Renaissance masters. Madrigal music originated and became popular during the Renaissance. To me, it seems like the archetypal Renaissance form. Unlike all of the medieval scholars and authors who had always composed in Latin, madrigal music was sung in the vernacular Italian where it was first composed. It was no longer art created for the educated elite. This was art everybody could enjoy. Madrigal lyrics were poems about secular life that were put to music. As this music spread to England, the songs were composed in the vernacular English and became even more body. Of course, no discussion of the Renaissance could be complete without talking about Shakespeare. 
He was a bit later in the movement, actively writing plays from about 1590 to 1610-ish. But the Renaissance came to England a bit later than Italy, so he's still considered a Renaissance artist. Not only is he almost universally considered the world's greatest playwright, but his plays amply show the distinction we've been talking about here. There are many great playwrights before him, but in watching the plays of Sophocles, Euripides, and others that came before him, you note that the characters tend to be one-dimensional. They're good or bad. The plays of these early playwrights tended to have strong allegorical meanings. With Shakespeare, for the first time, we're introduced to multidimensional characters that are both good and bad. We have plays that don't simply teach us lessons, such as obey your king or bad things will happen, but may simply show us the deep humor and or tragedy of life. After Shakespeare, not only all of theater, but all of literature would be changed. In literature, it was Boccaccio's older contemporary and mentor, Petrarch, who began the search for lost ancient manuscripts and to study those manuscripts for what they could teach us about the human condition. This interest in Plato and other ancient texts would occupy much of scholarship during the 15th century and profoundly influence all of Renaissance thought. People would no longer be seen as humble sinners who could not be redeemed without God's mercy. With the help of Plato and other ancient Greek philosophers, people were presented by Renaissance authors as the center of the universe. All of this was paradigm-shattering and gave us authors that we still read today. Boccaccio, Petrarch, and Dante Alighieri continue to be worth reading. Although the Renaissance provided a change of view and understanding of what it means to be human, it would take philosophy a little time to catch up. There's only one thinker from the Italian Renaissance that's still commonly read today. You know his name well. Can you think of him? You've undoubtedly referred to him yourself. Not coming to you? It's Niccolo Machiavelli. That's right. Machiavelli is Italy's only Renaissance thinker that we still commonly read and refer to. Although I'm no Machiavelli scholar, I don't think it's because his work was so popular in the Renaissance. Most of the writing that was popular at the time dealt with elevated themes of human character and the goodness of mankind. It's my impression that Machiavelli has just hung around kind of like the shock jock that people listen to because he says shocking things, not because he says anything profound or ever made that much of a difference. There were, however, a couple of thinkers from the Renaissance times that were creative enough to still be around today. The first was the English philosopher Thomas More. Like other Enlightenment writers, Moore wrote in a humanist vein. His most famous book, Utopia, described an imaginary country, which stood in stark contrast to what he saw as the unreasonably political, greedy, and money-oriented Europe that he lived in. Moore anticipated penal reform, a state-controlled education system, religious pluralism, divorce, and women's rights, among other things. In these, he was far ahead of his time. He was very prominent in the English government, but it's important to understand that Moore was devoutly religious. He would be, in fact, beheaded because of his opposition to King Henry VIII's split with the Catholic Church and the fact that the king named himself the head of the church in England. Erasmus is sometimes referred to as the Renaissance's other great humanist. Erasmus was a Dutch priest and certainly wrote some very forward-thinking humanist tracts still worth reading today. 
as an early humanist, much of his writing was still religious in nature. Later humanists would be mostly secular. Like Martin Luther, he was a reformer at heart, and much of his writing anticipated the more fiery Luther, who would soon split with the Catholic Church with his theories of predestination and salvation through faith. Unlike Luther, Erasmus never broke with the Church. Moore and Erasmus were both definitely humanists and wrote in new and creative ways about the human condition, but both were also churchmen and were devout in their beliefs. Perhaps they stand out in the Renaissance era because they had no contemporaries who were their intellectual equals. So why did the Renaissance produce so many great artists and so few great thinkers? I think it did. I think we just don't read or refer to them anymore because they're not all that interesting to us. It's like the fact that there were very sharp intellects during medieval times, but they were all writing about religious allegorical stuff that we find boring and don't read. Much of what was written by Renaissance thinkers just seems to be obvious to us and isn't really that interesting. Yet it was writing that changed the world. It changed everyone's point of view from the religious, superstitious mindset of the Middle Ages to the more secular, humanistic point of view that we have today. As such, I think they deserve at least a peek for those who want to dive deeper into the Renaissance. historians that I've heard describe indigenous cultures as childish. I'm sure an indigenous man or woman would say, let's take one of those academics who said that and let him live out here in the wilderness for a week and we'll find out who's childish. It all depends on your perspective. Elsewhere I've read authors who've described the nobility during the Middle Ages as adolescent. These aren't psychological diagnoses, but historians' impressions. Children, until age 11 or 12, think very concretely. Once they hit adolescence, along with all the other changes they go through, they begin to think more and more in terms of abstract thought. All societies function according to rules of systems. There's an emergence that takes place in which every culture, when viewed from a distance, assumes a collective personality. Medieval people thought very much in terms of black and white, that is, concretely. Abstract thought or any thinking outside the rigid medieval box of what was acceptable was not allowed and was severely repressed the few times it occurred. This was okay for most denizens of the Middle Ages, as they were uncomfortable with anything that challenged their worldview. We'll call this black and white worldview of the medieval period then childish, as it corresponds to the concrete thinking of the pre-adolescent. As we get to Petrarch and Boccaccio, however, we begin to see thinking that wasn't the kind that was handed down to them from their fathers and their fathers' fathers. This new kind of thinking began to question what it was like to be human and to live in society. This was very different from writing about their place in the great chain of being, which is what they were supposed to do. It took people with the ability to think outside the box, to think abstractly. So, for what it's worth, I'll dub the Renaissance as the beginning of the West's adolescence. This is just the beginning of the West's use of abstract thought, but there's a conscious decision to begin to explore new areas of what it is to be human. There's not yet the complete rebellion to traditional modes of thought that there will be in a hundred years or so, but it had to start somewhere, and this is where it started. 
Many of the great masterpieces still had religious themes. The ceiling of the Sistine Chapel comes to mind. The paintings of the Madonna and Child and other religious paintings were popular as well. The core of religious thought, which was the Catholic Church, had not yet come under fire, at least not in Italy. For that, you'll have to tune in next week. As always, there's a ton of great history that I haven't been able to cover in this podcast. As you know, we're looking for what's driving history. What it is that leads to the historical transformations that have led us to where we are now, and ultimately, trying to figure out how these drivers can be used to win the fight against climate change. All this means that I can't give you the full flavor of what life was like during any historical period we're covering. If you can't keep up with the weekly recommended reads, I hope you're keeping a list of at least the ones that sound good to you. Or you can go to my website, nearsfiddlepodcast.com, for a list of recommended reads so far. If, at some point, you're able to read all these books, or at least a substantial number of them, I think you'll have a pretty good feel for how we got to here. This week's read is Leonardo da Vinci by Walter Isaacson. It's the story of one of history's most interesting figures told by an outstanding writer. You'll not only learn about Leonardo, but get a good feeling for what life was like in Renaissance Italy. Enjoy. See you next week.